Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You can find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. It hasn't been that long since the pastor preached through 2 Corinthians. And you may remember, I certainly remember this, how often he emphasized that little expression, the ministry of death. Go back, listen to tapes, you'll hear it repeatedly. I would like to read 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. And if you will stand, we will read through this whole section about glory. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit.
are in the book of 1 Thessalonians. This morning we will be addressing the first half of chapter 5. At the end of chapter 4, Paul was reassuring the saints at Thessalonica that their loved ones in Christ, their believing loved ones who had died, were not going to miss the return of Christ to regather his church. And then there's a big five there, and it gives you the impression that Paul is starting some new thought. He's not. He's continuing the exact same theme, so much so that the end of chapter 4 says, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Chapter 5, verse 9, I'm going to start reading there. For God has not destined us to wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake, alive, or asleep, dead, that we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you are also doing. So everything that we're going to read in the first part of chapter 5 falls under the category of Paul comforting those in Thessalonica that whether we are alive at the time of Christ's coming or whether we have fallen asleep, whether we have passed away from this lifetime, we will all be gathered as one when Christ returns. Some will come up out of their graves. Some will instantaneously change. But we will all be gathered to live together with him, which Paul keeps saying is a tremendous encouragement. And it is a tremendous encouragement for those of us who are in Christ. But what about the rest of the world? What about the people who are not in Christ? Well, that's what he's going to address at the beginning of what we call chapter 5. Once he has addressed the fact that the church itself is going to be gathered when Christ descends from heaven with a shout, with a voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ rise first and we who are alive and remain are all caught up together with them. That's very, very good news for those of us who are in Christ. But that also inspires Paul to say, but there is also this time of judgment right behind that. And so he's going to address that time of judgment at the beginning of chapter 5. So let's read chapter 5 from beginning to end, and then we'll go back and start looking at the details. Now, as to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly 
like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk in the night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for his wrath, but for obtaining salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. And we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, Help the weak. Be patient with all men. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all men. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. But examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he will bring it to pass. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So after saying, we who are of Christ, we who are in Christ, we who have the Spirit of God in us, we are all going to be gathered. We are all going to meet the Lord in the air. We're all ever going to be with the Lord once he gathers us. And Paul knows the tremendous comfort that those words have. But then he touches on a really uncomfortable subject because he brings up the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is phraseology that is throughout the Old Testament. Remember when Paul is writing this, 
The only scripture that anybody has to refer to is what we know as the Old Testament. And so this phraseology of the day of the Lord is very well known. It's a time of trouble, a time of darkness, a time of God pouring out his judgment. It is a time of God's wrath. It is God finally pouring out his anger on his enemies. It is God finally unleashing the kind of wrath and anger that only he can exhibit. Okay, that's a really dark picture. Now, the folks in Thessalonica seem to be very concerned with several different elements of eschatology because they seem to be asking questions of Paul like, well, okay, you've said Christ is coming back, but when? When is that going to happen? And if it takes a bit of time, what about our loved ones who have already died? And oh yeah, Paul, the Bible says a lot about this time of trouble, this time of the day of the Lord, this time of God's wrath. What about that? Is there any chance that we're going to be in that? Is there any chance that we who are alive and remain, what if we don't get caught up? What if God starts pouring out wrath and some of us are remaining here? And so Paul is trying to reassure them that the day of the Lord is something that falls on them. And he uses the us and them language in order to designate that we who are alive and remain, we are caught up to meet the Lord in the air. We then we'll ever be with the Lord. But the day of the Lord is about them. And while they are saying peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes on them. But we're not going to be part of that because, as we've read twice now this morning, because the Lord God has not determined for us that we are going to go through wrath. And since the day of the Lord is the wrath of God, And since the wrath of God has already been poured out on Christ in our place, since he was our savior, redeemer, substitute for us, the wrath of God for our sins has already been poured out. But it was poured out on Christ. He absorbed the wrath of God in our place as part of his grand saving work. But since he did not do that grand saving work on the behalf of everybody who ever lived on the planet, there are still people who do not have their sin paid for. There are still people who are vessels of wrath, according to Paul writing in the book of Romans. And God is going to pour out his wrath on those who are fitted for destruction. Now, when's that going to happen? Well, Paul says, as for the the NASB says, times and epochs, some of your translations will say times and seasons. The Greek is the chronos and the kairos. If that sounds familiar, chronos, I don't know how many people ever refer to their watch anymore as a chronograph, but that is the initial name for a watch is a chronograph. That's why you have words like chronology things that are happening over the course of time. And then the word kairos, translated epics, is certain events in the course of time, particular moments as time travels by, certain events that in the course of time 
are standout events. Okay, that's what these epochs are. And so he's saying, now as for those chronos and those kairos, you have no need for anything to be written to you. But apparently he had already told them while he was with them that some of this stuff we just don't know the timing of. Because he then says in verse 2, for you yourselves know full well. So clearly this is something he has taught them. He expects them to remember it. He expects them to know it. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. He's using two particular phrases there. Day of the Lord, thief in the night. Both of those phrases already have biblical precedent for them. The Bible defines them, and therefore, you don't get to make up for yourself what either of those phrases mean. First thing you're going to notice as you look through the Bible is that that phrase, thief in the night, is used repeatedly for the return of God or the coming of Christ in judgment, but it is never used for the coming of Christ to gather his church. It's always for the day of the Lord. It's always for the judgment. It's always for the coming wrath of Christ. And that's the way that it's used all the way through the Bible. So let's start by defining the phrase day of the Lord, Joel chapter 1. This will help us define day of the Lord. Gird yourself with sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Come spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. For the grain offering and the drink offerings are withheld from the house of God. Consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to Yahweh, alas the day, for the day of the Lord is near and it will come as a destruction from the Almighty. Okay, that's the kind of phraseology that defines day of the Lord for us. The day of the Lord is the coming of God in wrath, coming in destruction, coming from the sovereign Almighty God. Later in Joel chapter 2, we read, Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy hill. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and a mighty people. There has never been anything like it, and there will never be anything like it again for many generations. Okay, day of the Lord, time of judgment, time of destruction, day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Continuing in Joel 2, starting at verse 7. This army, he described, they run like mighty men, they climb over the wall like soldiers. They each march in line, and they do not deviate from their paths. They do not crowd one another. They march everyone in his path. And when they burst through the defenses, they do not break ranks. They rush on the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. Hang on to that. Before them, the earth quakes. 
The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great, for strong is he who carries out his own word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome, and who can endure it? You getting a feel for this day of the Lord language? I'm cheering you up for a Sunday morning. (laughs) Zephaniah, starting in chapter 1, verse 14, says, Near is the day of the Lord. Near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it, the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day. A day of trouble and distress. A day of destruction and desolation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of Yahweh's wrath. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy, and he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. So as Paul is comforting those in Thessalonica, it's really important to recognize his basic scheme here. He has just said, we who believe in the Lord, whether alive or whether dead, we are all going to be gathered collectively and taken to be with the Lord, to meet the Lord in the air, so will we ever be with the Lord. And now you can understand why he would say, and comfort one another with those words, because at the same time, there's this thing called the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is coming, and it is a day of darkness, and a day of wrath, and a day of complete destruction of the inhabitants of the earth. And we're not any part of that. Why? Because we are not destined to wrath. If you've heard nothing else I'm saying this morning, hang on to that. That the God who is willing to be the great eternal sovereign judge, who is willing to pour out the kind of wrath and anger that you can't even begin to conceive of, when he begins really pouring out punishment on his enemies, he has also declared, but not on you. What good news? I mean, I I understand the gospel, the good news, is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Okay, I get that. But this is also really good news, which is why Paul keeps saying, comfort one another with these words. The day of the Lord is when God unleashes his anger and his wrath on the sinful people of this planet. And he starts with Israel for their hard-hearted refusal to follow him. And then his punishment finally encompasses all the inhabitants of the earth for their mistreatment of his chosen nation and his chosen people. And so there's this unfathomable wrath of God coming, a time of darkness, distress, fear, anguish, 
And then Peter picks it up in the New Testament while he's preaching at the day of Pentecost. As the Spirit is falling and the church of Jesus Christ is being established, in the midst of his message, he quotes directly from Joel 2.30, and he says, you'll find this in Acts 2, 19 and 20, and I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord shall come. So that transports this day of the Lord language and day of the Lord concept from the Old Testament into the New Testament. And at the very inception of the church and the coming of the Holy Spirit, Peter, by the Holy Spirit, in explaining to the critics who say these men are just drunk because they're speaking in languages that they don't normally speak. Peter, in replying to it and saying, they're not drunk, this is that which was already told you by Joel. And part of that is, again, the recitation of the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. So what we know is it hasn't happened when Peter was talking at Pentecost, okay? So the question is still, when? When does it happen? It hadn't happened at Pentecost yet. So then did it happen at, let's say, 70 AD? Well, John on the Isle of Patmos brings up Day of the Lord language again. You may recall, as we were teaching through the book of Revelation, that the best historical evidence for when John was on the Isle of Patmos is 92, 96 AD, during the reign of Domitian. And here John is going to cast the day of the Lord out into the future again. He says, Revelation 6, starting at verse 12, I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars fell from heaven. Okay, that's the exact same language we saw in Joel. It's the exact same language that we saw at the day of Pentecost coming from Peter, and it's the same language that John picks up and casts into the future. Whatever this moment is, at John's time on Patmos, it had not occurred yet. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come. And who's able to stand? That's day of the Lord language, especially when combined with the description of the cosmic disturbances that are going to happen during the time of the Lord. Cosmic disturbances that Joel describes, that Peter describes, that John describes. So, when did the day of the Lord happen? Well, I'm going to say it hasn't yet. 
because I can walk outside and I can still see the sun and the moon and the stars. Those cosmic disturbances have not happened yet, which means the day of God's punishment and judgment and wrath has not occurred yet. Paul tells those in Thessalonica, and you're not going to know when it's going to occur. At least the people still on the planet when it occurs aren't going to see it coming. They're still going to be doing their everyday lives. They're still going to be buying and selling, marrying and giving in marriage, still doing their everyday life, still saying peace and safety. And then sudden destruction is going to come upon them. That's what he means by like a thief in the night. That thief in the night language is also described for us in the Bible. Jesus himself uses thief in the night language. In Matthew 24, starting at verse 37, he says, For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, and given in marriage. Until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So Christ is saying, when he comes back in judgment, life is still going to be going on on planet Earth like it's just another day. People are going to wake up and still make plans for the future. They're going to not only marry, but given in marriage, looking forward to the day when we can get together. They're still going to be buying and selling and doing their trade and looking forward to the future. And the same way that the people in Noah's day didn't understand that the flood was coming until those first raindrops hit them and then sudden destruction swept them away, Jesus said, that's what it's going to be like on the day of the Lord. That's what it's going to be like when I come back in judgment. Like a thief in the night. Luke 17, 28 to 30. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating. They were drinking. They were buying. They were selling. They were planting. They were building. They're just looking forward to the future. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. And it'll be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. So when Christ comes back to the planet, not that moment when we are caught up to meet him in the clouds of the air and ever be with him, but that moment when Christ comes back to the planet with that two-edged sword out of his mouth, with that rod of iron with which he smashes the nations of this earth, when that happens, it's going to be such a sudden destruction that people just aren't going to see it coming. That's that whole concept of like a thief in the night. Because then, Matthew 24, Jesus says, Therefore be on alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the household had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert, and he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think, when you're not prepared, when you're not ready for it, when you're busy doing your life, then the Son of Man is going to appear in judgment. 
And that's just kind of axiomatic. I I like the thief in the night explanation that Jesus gave there because he said, look, if you knew what time the thief was going to break into your house, you know, if he called you like at 530 in the evening and said, you know, at 130, I'm intending to be at the front window with a hammer. So if you want to do anything about that, uh, that's my plan, 130. See you there, see you then. That would be really convenient, but that's not the way thieves work. Thieves come when you don't expect it, when you're sleeping in the night. And so Jesus said, that's what I'm going to come back like. When you don't see it coming, when you're not expecting it. Peter himself, who we earlier quoted from the day of Pentecost, in his epistle, in 2 Peter, he makes it really clear. He says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. So he's describing the same thing that Paul is describing, that the day of the Lord comes like a thief in the night. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, says Peter, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with an intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Okay, so now we've got Paul saying it, we've got Peter saying it, we've got Jesus saying it, and then in the book of Revelation, Jesus himself says, so remember what you have received and heard. This is in the letter to the church at Sardis. Remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. So Jesus himself returns to that thief in the night language and again combines it with the day of the Lord, with judgment, with wrath. And then later in Revelation, in Revelation 16, Jesus declares, behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he may not walk around naked and men will see his shame. So Jesus combines Thief in the night and his own return in judgment. Peter talks about it. Paul talks about it. The Old Testament talks about it. Thief in the night is that sudden destruction, just like the days of Noah, just like the days of Sodom. Paul knows all that is my point. The reason for reciting all of that to you is that Paul is familiar with this concept that the day of the Lord is thief-in-the-night stuff. It's going to happen when you're not expecting it. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. And whereas some of the others have said they're going to be buying and selling, they're going to be marrying, given in marriage, they're going to be doing their lives, doing their business, the way he describes it is, verse 3, While they are busy saying, I threw in the word busy just because it seems to fit the context. While they are saying, peace and safety. That's going to be their assumption. We're fine. We're safe. We're good. We're making plans. Everything's fine. Nothing to worry about. If there's a God, he's not doing anything about what's going on in the world anywhere. So just live it up. 
eat, drink, be merry. Don't worry about that whole God thing. While they're busy saying peace and safety, then sudden destruction will come on them. So far, that sudden destruction has been compared to the sudden flood that washed away everybody in the time of Noah. Or the sudden destruction when the hailstones came down burning from heaven on Sodom and Gomorrah and they didn't see it coming. Sudden destruction. And so Paul says it's going to bring about pain on them. It's going to come so suddenly it's going to be like birth pangs on a woman with child. Okay, so several of you women in here have had children. When the birth pangs happened, was it a bit of a surprise? I mean, did it just suddenly, oh, oh, we got to go now. Hospital, now. Get the car. Don't get dressed. Get in the car. We're going. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what he's describing here. It's going to be such an immediate moment that there's no escape from it. Nobody's going to see it coming. Nobody's out there waiting for it. While they're saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Okay, so that very torturous language, that very threatening language, that language of sudden destruction and punishment and wrath, Paul, after bringing all that up, feels it's necessary to once again, in comforting the church at Thessalonica, to make a division between the people who will suffer that wrath and the people who won't. And the good news is we're in the won't group. Verse 4 says, but you, brethren, I'm so grateful for this. By the way, just as a side comment here, Are you comfortable with a God who can be that wrathful, that vengeful, who is that big a judge, who is perfectly willing to defend his righteousness and holiness, who is willing to completely destroy the earth and everything on it, in order to remake it to a new heaven and a new earth. That's not the kind of God that people seem to be comfortable with for the most part. They like that big old man in the sky with the long white beard. They like that idea of the great grandfatherly God in the sky who gives you what you want. You go to him, you ask him for stuff, he does things for you because he just just loves you so much. And if you mess up, if you... If you happen to sin a little bit, if you just happen to rebel, if you just happen to be involved in things that he calls completely abominations, completely abominable to him, things that he hates, if you happen to do that, he'll understand. He's fine. He's good. When you get there in front of him, he'll just say, oh, fine, you tried. Come on in. You weren't as bad as Hitler, so good enough. Come on That's the kind of God you hear about all the time. But the God of the Bible, the real God, the sovereign God, the maker of heaven and earth, is a God who is perfectly comfortable pouring out his wrath, pouring out his anger and his vengeance. 
He is the great eternal judge, and we need to know that about him. We need to recognize that about him because that will drive you to your knees in front of him because you recognize your incapability, your sinfulness, and that you deserve judgment from that righteous holy God, which is why it's such good news that Paul can say, But you, brethren, you are not appointed to wrath. Oh, yay. Oh, yippee. Oh, good. Oh, hurrah. I'm surprised no one's dancing in the aisles right now. You, brethren, are not in darkness so that that day should overtake you like a thief. After spending all that time defining thief in the night and showing the connection between the suddenness of the return of Christ in vengeance, coming back in judgment, that day of gloom and darkness and destruction and the wrath of God, that is all happening to the people who are in darkness to the people who have not been enlightened, those people who have not been regenerated, those people don't know anything about God, aren't looking for God, don't care about the things of God, and he's going to fall on them as a sudden destruction. But not us, but not you, because you're not in the dark. You're not in the dark because you're of the day. And so that day of destruction, that day of the Lord, that day of wrath, it's not going to overtake you like a thief. Why? Because you're in the group that is already with Christ in the sky. You're already in the group who is ever living with the Lord when the Lord starts pouring out day of the Lord wrath on the inhabitants of earth who are living in the darkness. But you, brethren, are not in darkness so that that day would overtake you like a thief because you are sons of light. Paul is going to use repeatedly this light-dark contrast the same way that Jesus did. If you know anything about God, if you know anything about Christ, you're called enlightened. You're not left in the darkness of your own mind, your own dark heart, your own dark soul. Instead, you are enlightened to the things of God. He's also then going to contrast it to being awake or being asleep. That is not being woke or being asleep. I need to make the difference there. It's the difference between being awake to reality, awake to the fact that sovereign God is in charge of this world and that you have been enlightened by the Holy Spirit to recognize the things of God, to have a God-type worldview that is going to carry you through this life in faith and hope And the rest of the world doesn't have that. They're in darkness. They have no hope. Paul already identified them when he said that we don't grieve like those who have no hope. Because they're in the dark. They're asleep. But you, brethren, are not in the darkness so that that day would overtake you like a thief. For you are sons of light. And sons of day, for we are not of night or of darkness. 
So then, let us not sleep like the others do. He's saying the whole world seems to be in this fit of slumber. The whole world is in this darkness that is covering their eyes where they cannot see the things of God. They cannot see the obvious things that are right in front of them. They can walk outside anytime, look up at the heavens, and Paul tells us in the book of Romans, the heavens declare God's handiwork. God's righteousness is revealed from the heavens. From the creation, these things are knowable because God himself created all of this. And we have no explanation for it. It just is. We can look at it. We can send more telescopes up to see it. But there's not a person on planet Earth who actually comprehends what's going on up there. God calls every star by name. Can you do that? I mean, the God of creation is so far above us and beyond us. And all you have to do is walk outside and look up, and it's obvious. People refuse that. And the reason that they refuse it, the reason that they won't see it, the reason that they don't comprehend that is because they're asleep. And we don't sleep as the others do. But let us be alert and sober. Sober, in your right mind, thinking clearly, not clouded by the stuff of this world. The stuff of this world is pervasive. The stuff of this world is coming at you 24-7, trying to cloud your mind, trying to deceive you, trying to turn you away from everything that is right and holy and good and biblical. Instead, the world is trying to tell you to hate. Yes. The, the whole world is ensconced in this culture of death. And death, according to Jesus, is an enemy. And the whole world will tell you who you need to hate and which groups to hate and why this group is not as good as that group and why you can't trust those people and why they, they're trying to tear you down as much as they possibly can. But be alert. Be aware of what's going on. Be aware of the world and its machinations because the prince of the power of the air is still at work. And the world demonstrates that. The world reflects that. But we who have the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ within us, we can see through that and we understand the wiles of Satan. And we're ready to withstand the fiery darts as they come our way. Because we've been enlightened. And so we are alert to these things and we think soberly about these things. We're not going to be dissuaded We're not going to be turned away because we're alert and clear thinking. Okay, another another one of these side moments. I contend that Christianity is one of the smartest propositions in the history of human thought. And way too much of modern day Christianity is being systematically dumbed down. You can turn on the internet any day and watch church services where you just go, what? (laughs) What's happening there? Wait, you're having clowns do the Eucharist? What? What? (laughs) 
what is happening? There are certain things that the Bible says are clearly abominable that are now in the leadership of churches in the world, so-called churches in the world. Christianity is smart. And as long as we play dumb, then it's easy for the critics of Christianity to say that Christianity is dumb. Because we far too often act dumb. Christianity is smart. To understand Christianity right and to understand your Bible, you got to get into history. You got to get into prophecy. You've got to get into genealogy. You've got to get into soteriology and salvation and, and why salvation is necessary so that you get into anthropology. And what are men really made up of? And, and how is it that we're at this point in the world right now? To understand our society, you have to understand the Bible. To understand what's happening in wars in the world right now, you have to understand the history of what happened in the Middle East. The more you are intelligent about your Christianity, the more far-reaching Christianity becomes. You're never going to exhaust it. You're never going to fully comprehend it. Christianity has managed to keep the smartest people in the history of the world entertained for the entirety of their lives. And most of them end up dying saying, I'm just now getting a hold of it. I'm just starting to scratch the surface. I'm really looking for it. Christianity is smart. So Paul says, be thinking. Think about it. Consider it. Be sober. Be awake. Be alert. Pay attention. God is talking to you. That's right. mm -hmm. The real God who made heaven and earth has given you his word. And he's demonstrating himself in his own creation. And he's demonstrating his power to move nations and move people. And he's demonstrating himself in the way that he is saving certain individuals. Decisions that were made before the foundation of the world. That God deigned to let you come talk to him. It's smart. It's intelligent. It's well thought out. Okay, that was this thing. Now I'm over here again. But. So then let us not sleep as the others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep, sleep in the dark, sleep in the night. And those who get drunk, get drunk in the night. Okay, that's in direct contrast to being alert and sober. The opposite of being alert and sober is being asleep and drunk. And so Paul says, don't be that way. That's the way the world is. For those who sleep, do their sleeping at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, I love that language that Christ is the day spring, that Christ is the bright and the morning star. The language of Christ is always language of enlightenment. You never see Christ described in dark language. It's always light language because he is the one who is enlightening us. And that means we are of the day. Notice again the we. We, not they. They're going to say peace and safety. Sudden destruction is going to come on them. 
But we, we who are in Christ, we're of the day. So let us be sober. Let us be clear thinking. And let us put on the breastplate and the helmet. That's the language of battle. That's the language of getting prepared to go into a battle. The Roman soldiers all wore helmets and breastplates. And Paul knows that as you're walking through this world as a Christian person, there's a battle to be had. And so he says, suit up, because the battle is coming. Since we're of the day, let us be clear thinking and then put on a breastplate and that breastplate is our faith, pistis, our confidence in the finished work of Christ, our confidence in the word of God, our confidence, our security, our determination that the word of God, every bit of it, is going to come true just like he said. And that's what we're going to wear over our hearts through our whole lives. That breastplate of both faith in Christ, in God, in his word, and with that love, sacrificial love, which we talked about last week, that love for the brethren, that love that is demonstrated by the fact that we're willing to sacrifice for one another. That, he says, wear that to cover your chest and your heart. Wear the breastplate of faith and love. And then put some on your head. Protect your head. And how are you going to protect your head when the whole world is trying to feed your head? When the whole world is aiming at your head? When the whole world is trying to put corrupt ideas in your head? When the whole world is constantly trying to get you to think their way and follow their way and think their thoughts? How are you going to protect yourself from the onslaught of worldly corrupt ideas. Well, you're going to put a helmet on, and that helmet is your hope of salvation. El peace, that looking forward to, that confident expectation of what you know is coming. You know salvation through Jesus Christ is not only the process that you're in at this very moment, but that he himself is going to call you home. You're going to be ever protected as you meet your king, your Lord in the air. And then he is in that process of saving you every single day. So your heart is protected by your faith and your love. Your mind is protected by the hope of Jesus Christ, by the hope of salvation, by the finished work that makes you secure in the onslaught of this present evil age. For God, this will be now what, the fourth or fifth time I'm going to say it? But I'm going to say it again because, man, I like it. For God has not destined us, we talk a lot about destiny here and predestination, God has predestined some people to salvation and those people, because they are in Christ and because he has already poured out his wrath on Christ for those people, God then has not destined us for wrath. That's not what he did for us. He, if he poured out his wrath on Jesus Christ for Shane's sin, 
and then later poured out his wrath on Shane for Shane's sin. That's like saying that what Jesus did didn't do it. It wasn't effective. It didn't protect Shane. It didn't save Shane because Shane still has to pay for his own sinfulness. Instead, the wrath was poured out on Christ. Therefore, Shane has no more wrath to absorb for his sin. His sin is completely wiped away by the finished work of Christ, who is a perfect substitute and perfect savior. Therefore, Shane, no wrath for you. Yay. 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 I think we all collectively now can celebrate Shane and his lack of wrath. I mean, it's, it's just a great thing. God has not destined us for wrath. But here's what he did destine us for. But for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is what we've been destined to. Here, I'll make it easy. Hey, Erica. Hey, how you doing, Erica? Hey, hi. Do you believe in Christ? Oh, yeah. yeah. The folks on the internet couldn't hear you nodding. But yeah, so you believe in Christ. Yeah. Why? Because you were destined to it. Out of all the people on planet Earth, God decided you. God wrote your name down in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. Was there any chance you were not going to come to faith? No, because you were destined to that. Some people, vessels of wrath fitted for destruction, are destined for the wrath of God. And some people are destined to be in Christ, Christ in them, redeemed by the finished work of Christ. They have no more sin debt to pay. Therefore, they're not appointed to wrath. They are appointed to salvation. And boy, if you wake up in the morning and and can think to yourself, I'm destined to salvation. God has given me the most precious gift that I could possibly imagine in eternity. He has put me in his son and given me faith in the finished work of his son, his beloved one. If God did that for you, it's because he always meant to do that for you and is going to demonstrate that he always meant to do that for you by showing you that he wrote your name down before the foundation of anything. What a great God. What an astounding God. What a merciful, gracious God. Because not only are we destined for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, but then Paul describes how that is. Because he's the one who died for us. So that whether we are alive or whether we are dead, whether we are awake or whether we are asleep, we will live together with him. If you have faith in Jesus Christ today, it is because he determined it for you from the beginning and is now implementing that salvation in your life so that you will ever live with the Lord because he himself is your savior, your king, your redeemer. He is your sovereign. He is the one who chose you. 
He is the one who determined that we are going to live together with him forever. And since he is the one with all the power, what do you think the chances are anybody's not going to get there that he intended to have there? Well, we're all going to be there. There's not a one that's going to be missing. He's going to collect us all because we are the sheep of his flock. We belong to him, our great shepherd. So Paul could sum up in verse 11 by saying, therefore, encourage one another. Have you ever heard such good encouraging words? No. Have you ever heard such good stuff in your measly little stupid life? God's for you. Who can be against you? Christ himself died for you and is coming to get you and is going to take you with the whole of his church, his bride. He's going to take you off the planet before God pours out wrath. And those that are here for his wrath are going to run and hide and beg for death. It's going to be bad. It's going to be dark. It's going to be gloomy. It's going to be painful. It's going to be fiery. It's a destruction from the Lord, but not you. Oh, man, I like that. Look, you can go home. I'm just going to stand here and say that over and over again. Because that's such good news. Therefore, encourage one another. Leave here encouraged on your way out. Look at each other and realize you're going to be together in eternity. You're going to be together forever because you all share the common spirit of God himself, Christ himself, who is in the process of redeeming and saving you until the day that he comes to get you. So encourage one another and build up one another just as you're doing because that is the Christian hope. That is the Christian life. That is what we do. We get together and we encourage each other and we build each other up. And the best way to do that is to remind each other, God is for you. Christ died for you. The ever-living one loves you and is coming to get you before he pours out wrath on this planet. What tremendous encouragement. We appreciate you listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.